0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Wednesday night Bible study, Church Fathers, part four. I'll begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the way that you have sovereignly and providentially guided the progress and development of your church throughout the centuries. And even despite our shortcomings as fallible human beings, You are still able to work out what you want what you desire for your church we ask that you would help us to learn from the examples both good and bad positive and negative and you would help us to apply the principles that you are teaching us to our lives we ask that you would be with us as we look at these things this evening in jesus name amen so as i mentioned we're looking at church history the church fathers part four tonight, we'll be looking at Tertullian. The, the Church Fathers that I'm, I've been looking at and will be looking at are, are basically second century Church Fathers. Tertullian is the one we're looking at tonight. Church Father Tertullian built a safe enclosure into which the Christians of his day could be herded for protection against the heretics working without. He constructed this corral, not by the sweat of his brow or the edge of an ax, but by the, the wit that he so definitely wielded as, as an accomplished writer. With him, the writings that he provided for us. Tertullian was a master of the Latin language. He was the first Christian author known to compose literary works in this tongue instead of Greek. So up to, the, up to this time, uh, the church fathers were writing in Greek Uh, Tertullian was the first major church father to be writing in Latin. Although his abbreviated style often makes it difficult to ascertain his exact meaning, nobody can miss his main points. Even today, he is famous for his pithy expressions, such as the critique of philosophy in his question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Or the celebration of martyrdom in his slogan, the blood of Christians is seed. Tertullian protected the Christians of his day by enclosing them in a fence made of words. Unfortunately, he kept making the enclosure smaller and smaller until eventually only a few were left inside. We can see Tertullian's fence building at its best in his work called Prescription Against Heretics. In this treatise, he marked out a safe space for the Orthodox believers to live and in so doing, excluded the heretics from their midst. Tertullian was irritated, as he often was, by the Gnostics and others who constantly quoted Jesus' words, seek and you shall find, as justification for their unlimited theological deliberation. The heretics never actually arrived at a position, but constantly offered speculative theories, dragging the more civil believers into their controversies. Tertullian responded emphatically My first principle is this. Christ laid down one definite system of truth, which the world must believe without qualification, and we, which we must seek precisely in order to believe it when we find it. Once Christ's authoritative teachings have been found, philosophical seeking should end, replaced by firm belief. The teachings of Jesus served as the boundary for true Christians. Believers should not go searching for wisdom outside his revealed truth. In the material world of course fences are visible to the eye and clear for all to see when it comes to something abstract like doctrines or ideas how are we to know where the boundary line is drawn in other words how do we know what Christ really taught for Tertullian the essentials of the church's faith had been clearly spelled out in the baptismal creed like Irenaeus before him Tertullian believed the most convenient synopsis of Christian truth was found in the rule of faith, with its defined contours, theological, within its defined contours, theological seeking was perfectly acceptable. So in other words, you can you can try to understand things better within the rule of faith, the the truth that God has delivered to us, but you don't go peeling around outside of of those boundaries. Let us now seek in our own territory, he writes, from our own friends and on our own business. And let us seek only what can come into question without disloyalty to the rule of faith, provided the essence in the rule is not disturbed, you may seek and discuss as much as you like. Or as he puts it a few lines later with his typical wit to know nothing against the rule is to know everything. The rule of faith emphasized the creator God who sent his son to be born of a virgin to die and rise again to ascend to heaven and to return for a final judgment. By laying out the basic framework of salvation history, the rule erected a visible fence that separated those inside the corral from the predators outside with their destructive cosmic myths. Did Tertullian's appreciation for the rule of faith mean he preferred it over the scriptures? Such an idea would have been observed to him. The rule of faith is nothing but an accurate summary of what the apostles taught as the word of Christ. In other words, it was a distillation of scripture more uh, of scriptures more complete message. But Tertullian was practical enough to realize that the scriptures could be interpreted subjected to many different interpretations. How could a believer discern the right one? For Tertullian as for all the church fathers criterion for Christian truth was agreement with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Since the Lord was no longer present on earth and did not leave any writings of his own, it was necessary to examine the writings of the apostles, those to whom Christ had revealed himself directly. Assuming the rule was a summary of the apostles' teaching, it was the key by which Scripture's true meaning could be unlocked. In contrast, the interpretations of the heretics, which did not conform to the rule, were shown to be erroneous because they lacked congruence with apostolic doctrine. Tertullian vigorously challenged the heretics on their lack of apostolicity. They could, no, they could make no claims to possess the truth, he said, for their pedigree did not go back to the founding of the church. They were latecomers, and as such, they had no right of access to the word of God. Tertullian was very protective of the scriptures. He wanted to ensure that the Bible would be interpreted not by endless heretical speculations, but by the received summary of Christian truth. He even attempted to prevent the heretics from debating about the Bible's meaning at all. It's simply not their book. Since they are not apostolic, they have no right to offer any interpretations of it. This is what Tertullian meant when he called his treatise a prescription against the heretics. The prescriptio, was a Roman legal concept that excluded certain parties from bringing a suit in court. We still use this principle today. For example, I cannot sue someone about a property so that my friend may be happy. If I am not the legal owner of the property, I have no right to come before the bench to litigate about it. I am proscribed from legal action by non-ownership. In the same way, Tertullian argued that the heretics had no right of ownership to the Bible it belonged to the Orthodox Christians who were the only rightful heirs of the apostles. So the heretics should keep their hands off what is not their property. Are you now catching a sense of Tertullian's sheer audacity here? Don't miss it. As we now turn to a brief account of Tertullian's life, you probably realize what a cowboy this church father was. We might say he's like the lone sheriff who was bold enough to chase the gang of outlaws out of town of course, I do not want to portray Tertullian in an idealistic way. He is like a conflicted character, and there is much about him to dislike. I'll mention some of his faults and errors. At the same time, I don't want you to miss the stubbornness, the flair, the true grit of this ancient church father. The force of Tertullian's personality reverberated well beyond his lifetime. Later generations found much to value in Tertullian's thought. But for someone who is such a towering figure in North African Christianity, we know very little about his life. The traditional picture is as follows. Tertullian was born around AD 160, the son of a Roman centurion. As an adult, he practiced law at Rome until he converted to Christianity from paganism. He became a presbyter, and elder in the church at Carthage, near modern day Tunis in Tunisia, serving there until he broke away from the church as he became increasingly attracted to a sect of spirit-filled prophets called the Montanists. He died at an old age, estranged from the, from the church community. That's the traditional view. Uh, this is a map showing you where Carthage is located. Car- Carthage is located in North Africa, in what is today Tunisia. Um, Carthage, anciently, was a very powerful uh, city state. Uh, Carthage controlled a, a narrow strip of land all across North Africa and into the southern part of Spain. And Carth- Carthage was so powerful that it was actually became a, a rival to the Roman Empire. So in uh, there was a series of wars fought between Carthage and, and the Roman Empire. Uh, back in the BC days, uh, from about 264 to 146 BC. There was a whole series of wars between Carthage and and the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire eventually came out on top. But Carthage is located uh, just across the Mediterranean Sea from, from Italy. Now, I gave you the traditional view of Tertullian's life, Not modern scholarship has blurred this already vague picture of the man. Now it is widely accepted that Tertullian was not a soldier's son, was not a, an elder, a presbyter, was not formally trained in law, and may not have died as an old man. Furthermore, his precise relationship with the Montanus is debated today. So our final picture of Tertullian is really quite fuzzy. When we examine his writings, we can see he was a highly educated in both Greek in Latin, he knew philosophy, literature, rhetoric, and legal theory. The Montanists, by the way, were sort of the Pentecostals and Charismatics of their day. They believed that uh, Christians continued to receive revelations from God. So that was the, the Montanists. And Tertullian did come to the the defense of the Montanists against their critics, but it's not entirely clear that he ever actually became one of them. His writings span the years AD 197 to 212 and include a treatise on marriage called To My Wife, from which we can assume he was a married man. Beyond this meager information, not much more can be said. Nor do we know exactly how Christianity came to to, uh, Tertullian's home city of Carthage. Perhaps the faith arrived from Rome, since he said it was uh, from there that the African believers made their connection to an apostolic church. Others have theorized that the Christian community grew out of Jewish Christian congregations. In any case, history reveals that the church's character in North Africa was very much like Tertullian's own personality morally rigorous, erratically devoted, and steadfastly opposed to the pagan world. These traits are the perfect formula for producing martyrs, which the North African church had in abundance. Indeed, our earliest evidence of North African Christianity is a text commonly called the Acts of the Silicon Martyrs. On July 17, in the year, A.D. 180, 12 Christians from the town of Slime were brought before the proconsul in order to swear religious devotion to the emperor. From their names, we can deduce that they were common people of the land, not nobles. However, they were not all illiterate. Their leader, Speritus, had brought Christian books and the epistles of Paul to the trial. When the confessors were urged to renounce Christianity, all 12 utterly refused to do so and were sentenced to execution for their devotion to the Lord. But while North Africa was definitely a land of radical Christian commitment, it didn't only produce rustic martyrs. Two centuries later, the region would be home to the most influential church father of them all, Augustine, who taught at Carthage for a time and later became the bishop of the nearby city of Hippo. Yet, despite such a profound legacy of martyrs and theologians, today there is virtually no Christian presence in North Africa. The region is completely dominated by Islam. In the third century, long before fundamentalist Islam had come on the scene, Christianity was alive and well in the writings of Tertullian. It is perhaps the church's finest tribute to him that so many of his works have been preserved to our times. Today we possess 31 of his writings in the original Latin, most of which are very substantial theological discourses. Compare that to the great Bishop Irenaeus that we looked at last time. Only two of his writings now survive and neither is in his original Greek except for a few fragments. Among the Latin church fathers, only Augustine and Jerome are on par with Tertullian as having earned such a high regard among later scribes. Tertullian's longest work is a five volume anti-heretical treatise that is notable not only for its bulk, but also because it blossomed into a sustained effort at verse by verse scriptural exegesis. As such, it is considered one of the first Christian biblical commentaries. Now today we have lots of biblical commentaries, but we're going back to the second century when when this was just beginning. Tertullian was was the first person, as far as we know, to begin working on a commentary on the Bible. The work is known as Against Marcion, which immediately causes us to ask, who is this fellow Marcion and what made Tertullian direct the full force of his debater's rhetoric against him in five long volumes it is time to get acquainted with the man whom Tertullian obviously viewed as an arch enemy of the church Marcion was a rich businessman with an interest in church affairs as is often true in such cases His money gave him the opportunity to propagate his own peculiar theology. He was from Sinope, a port city in the region of Pontus along the Black Sea. From that base, he made his fortune in international shipping. But There's evidence that even as a young man, his theology was beginning beginning to go astray. The ancient belief is that Marcion's father who may have been a bishop was forced to excommunicate his son for heresy. Whether that is true or gossip or both is hard to say. Uh, there's a map showing you where this region of Pontus is. In the inset down at the, uh, down in the lower right, you can see that we're in in Asia Minor in, in what is today Turkey. And Pontus is the strip of land along the, the, north, uh, the north coast of, Asia Minor, Turkey It's it's the, the southern shore along the southern shore of the Black Sea and that's where the region that Marcion is from You'll notice that just to the south of Pontus is the region known as Galatia and that's where Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians What we do know is that in about AD 140 Marcion arrived in Rome and made a huge donation to the church. But when the leaders there found out what he was actually teaching, to their credit, they returned the sum in full and excommunicated him. Yet this powerful man did not disappear from the scene. He became the overseer of a widespread network of Marcionite churches, which the Orthodox church leaders understood to be the work of Satan. Justin Martyr, who we looked at uh, earlier, who was living in Rome at the time, wrote many have believed this man, Marcion, as if he alone knew the truth, and they laugh at us though they have no proof of what they say, but are carried away irrationally as lambs by a wolf, and become the prey of atheistic doctrines and of devils. Likewise, we learn that Polycarp once ran into Marcion at Rome, but completely ignored him. Apparently, Marcion was feeling a little Insecure about his reputation that day, for he demanded of the bishop, Acknowledge me. I do acknowledge you, Polycarp replied. You are the firstborn of Satan. This was probably not the reply Marcion was looking for. What made the church fathers so angry in Marcion? Why would Tertullian take five volumes to demolish this heretic? The nature of his doctrine was so egregious that the Orthodox writers from Justin Martyr to Irenaeus to Tertullian and beyond all felt compelled to refute him. In a nutshell, Marcion taught that there are two gods. Playing off Marcion's former occupation and commercial shipping, Tertullian wrote. The heretic of Pontus introduces two gods like the twin clashing rocks of his own shipwreck. One whom it is impossible to deny, our creator, and one whom he will never be able to prove, a god of his own. The creator god that Marcion saw in the Old Testament was cruel, arbitrary, petty, warlike, and stupid. He was more than simply a god of strict justice. He was literally a very mean god. This deity even said horrible things such as, I create calamity. In contrast, Jesus came to announce a new or alien God. The Father God was loving, kind, and forgiving. According to Marcion, the Jews worshipped the creator who had fashioned our contemptible world. But all along, there's always been another God. Formerly unknown to mankind, he eventually sent, or perhaps came in the form of, there, there are variations of the, of the Marcionite teaching. Eventually sent Jesus to tell us that our sins are automatically forgiven without any punishment. Jesus' purpose was to announce universal salvation for everyone. To do this, he did not really need a human body. So Marcion, like the Gnostics, was a docetist who denied a real incarnation. Against such nonsense, Tartullian fired this sarcastic bullet. You may, I assure you, more easily find a man born without a heart and brains, like Marcion himself, and without a body like Marcion's Christ. For the Orthodox Church Fathers, Marcionite theology simply was not Christian doctrine. Let us not overlook the biblical ramifications here. Marcion rejected the God of the Jews and therefore believed that the religion of Christianity bore no connection to the salvation history of Israel. The greatest modern commentator on Marcion, Adolf von Harnack wrote that his entire attitude toward the Old Testament and Judaism can best be understood as one of resentment His Christianity is built upon a resentment toward Judaism and its religion. Obviously, Marcion's disdain toward the God of the Jews would have a profound effect on his understanding of the Bible. He completely rejected the Old Testament as being relevant for Christians in any way. With respect to the New Testament, Marcion accepted only the Gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul. Why these works alone? Marcion saw himself as the true inheritor of Paul. Only the great apostle to the Gentiles got the gospel message right and remained uninfected by Jewish ideas. From Marcion's radical point of view, the law grace distinction in Paul's writings became a distinction between two different deities, each with his own set of scriptures. Marcion thought the letters of Paul and the Gentile Gospel of Luke contained many statements that were antithetical to the God revealed in the Old Testament. So, this outdated and vindictive creator deity had to be rejected. Of course, this meant that anything that smacked of high regard for Judaism in Luke or Paul needed to be edited away as a supposed corruption of their actual teaching. So, even though he ex- accepted the Gospel of Luke and the epistles of Paul, he still, even within them, he edited out anything that he didn't like. And he didn't accept all of the uh, epistles of Paul. Uh, Out of the 13, he only accepted 10. By settling on an edited form of Pauline epistles in the Gospel of Luke, Marcion was one of the first figures to delineate which writings he viewed as biblical for this reason he was an influential figure in the history of the canon of scripture see this is one of the good things that the heretics did for the church because it made the church think more carefully and to to define and delineate what exactly was the canon of scripture so when heretics made these claims about what they considered to be scripture the church had to to think about how it would actually define scripture and which which books should be considered as the the canon of scripture this later became true also with with the doctrines like like the trinity where the fact that false teachers were teaching false ideas required the church to think very carefully about what exactly the scriptures did say about the nature of the Son and the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which referred to a straight reed or cane used as a measuring rod. Books that are canonical measure up to the ultimate standard. Let's make them a measure of truth themselves the process of canonization for the Old and New Testaments followed different courses. The early Christians embraced the Jewish scriptures from the very beginning. While they were not always clear about the exact boundaries of some disputed writings, the core books of the Law and the Prophets, invariably possessed authoritative status in the church. However, the ancient Christians did not at first refer to these works as the Old Testament, they were simply called Scripture. And quotations were often introduced with the phrase, it is written. The earliest believers did not have any awareness of a second testament to complement the first. For them, the scriptures were the sacred writings of the Jews that Jesus himself had read and interpreted. It took some time for the church to realize that another distinct testament had been delivered to the human race. In this process of recognition, we can discern four stages. First century, writing of the biblical text. Evangelical scholars would agree that all 27 books of the New Testament were written by the end of the first century. It is important to note that from a theological perspective, the inspired books are scripture from the very moment of their writing. So when we discuss the issue of the canon, we're talking about the biblical books being recognized for what they are. This process took several centuries. The ancient church did not create God's word by declaring it to be divine, but simply identified it as such over time. And this is very important because the Roman Catholic Church claims that they gave us the New Testament. No, they didn't give us the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were scripture from the time that they were written. They didn't become scripture when some council uh, approved of them. So in the first century, we see the writing of the biblical text, the writing of scripture. In the second century, we see the acceptance of the authoritative cortex with some dispute. During the second century, the core of the New Testament came to have widespread authority throughout the church. This is not to say the biblical writings had, had possessed no authority before, but they certainly did. But what we find in the early to mid-second century is that Christianity became more of a book-based religion than it had been previously. Back in the apostolic days, the eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive. So Christianity was spread through verbal proclamation rather than through texts. At that time, it was still primarily an oral religion. The situation obviously changed in the second century and thus the faith became more literary. There was a greater sense that the Christian religion possessed its own special books. During this period, the four gospels and the letters of Paul crystallized as core works, mini-canons so to speak. Other important writings such as Acts, 1 John, and 1 Peter were widely viewed as authoritative as well. However, there were some New Testament books that the early believers were unsure about, such as the short letters of Second and 3 John, James, or the virtually unknown 2 Peter. And there were other inspired writings Such as an epistle thought to have been written by Barnabas, which some Christians believed might belong in the canon. So the shape of the canon at this time consisted of an authoritative core with fuzzy edges. Third century awareness of a two testament Bible. As I said last time, Irenaeus appears to have been the first to use the term New Testament in connection with the body of writings. A little later, Tertullian was even more clear in his usage of this term. He is the church father to whom we assign the honor of giving us the literal term New Testament from the Latin Novum testamentum. If Irenaeus was somewhat vague about what he meant two decades later, Tertullian certainly operated with a conception of the New Testament as a distinct scriptural corpus. We see then that at the dawn of the third century, a new awareness arose among the Christian faithful, that their Bible was comprised of both Old and New Testament. The church continued to function with this awareness for more than a century, until Emperor Constantine's imperial acceptance of Christianity finally enabled church leaders to make some official pronouncements about the precise constitution of the biblical canon. Fourth century... List-making, exclusion, and final closure of the canon. When the church found itself no longer persecuted by the Roman authorities and instead favored by the emperor, it gained new opportunities to define its sacred canon. Emperor Constantine told his trusted advisor Eusebius to have 50 official copies of the scriptures made for use in prominent congregations. Eusebius took great interest in the matter of the canon. Listing those books, he believed to be definitely canonical, possibly canonical, and certainly not canonical. His canon list was one of many written during the 4th century. The first canon list in all of church history to clearly and unequivocally accept the 27 books of the New Testament was composed by Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria in AD 367. And we'll talk about him in the whole Trinity controversy later on. 30 years later, a council at Carthage ratified this same list, except for Revelation, which was added a few years after that. So we must view the canonization of the New Testament as a centuries long process of reflection and final recognition. It was begun informally as soon as people like Peter started calling Paul's epistles scripture. The debate finally ended around AD 400. From this point on the church has possessed a closed canon. Tertullian played a vital role in the canonization process. He was not the only important figure. Indeed there was no one person who defined the biblical canon for the church and he was writing at that crucial time when heretics are being vigorously refuted. And the unified church was being formed to stand against them. When I discussed Irenaeus last time, we discovered three main strategies in this effort. Apostolic bishops, apostolic canon, and apostolic creeds. Tertullian followed the same threefold strategy. He grounded the church in the deposit of faith received from those who had walked and talked with the Lord Jesus. And so we discovered that to determine which books were in the Bible, Apostolicity was the number one criterion that had to be met. Tertullian wrote, I lay it down as my first position, that the evangelical testament as apostles for its authors, to whom the Lord himself assigned the job of publishing of the gospel. Of the apostles, John and Matthew, who were Jesus' disciples, first filled faith into us. And the apostolic men, that is, non disciples, Luke and Mark, renewed it afterwards. These men all started with the same principles of faith the one and only Creator God and His Christ, who was born of the Virgin and came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Never mind if some variation occurs in the order of their narratives provided that there is agreement in the essential matter of the faith, in which there is total disagreement with Marcion. Tertullian's statement here represented the policy of the entire church with regard to canonization. The books to be read as authoritative must bear an intimate connection with the apostles. This was the church's way of guaranteeing that heretical ideas such as those of Marcion would be excluded. We should note, however, that for Tertullian, the issue was bigger than simply accepting the apostolic New Testament alongside the prophetic Old. The real issue was the unity of God and Christ that is expressed in the harmony of their dual revelation. Tertullian's most important contribution to church history was his portrayal of God's work as a single narrative of divine redemption. Following the principles he discerned in writers like Irenaeus, Tertullian's treatise against Marcion laid out his case for a unified salvation history with a theological depth no Christian author had yet achieved. The words of Jesus came often to his mind. I have not come to abolish them, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them for the the relationship between the law and the gospel was one of preparation and fulfillment certainly there was a separation between the two but it was a separation achieved through reshaping through amplification through progress just like fruit is distinct from its seed although fruit comes out of seed so also the gospel is separated from the law because it advances from out of the law, something other than the law, but not alien to it. Different, though not opposed. Tertullian believed there was a single and indivisible salvation history in which the seed planted in the Old Testament bore fruit in the coming of Christ. While there was obviously an advancement, there was no fundamental rupture between the two covenants just as there can be no rupture between the Creator and his Christ. It was this vital truth that made Marcion's teachings so dangerous. Tertullian's doctrine of the unity of God and Christ laid an important foundation for future theological debates within the church. The Holy Spirit was acknowledged too, of course, but most of the initial discussion revolved around the Father and the Son around what is the nature of the son? What is the nature of the relationship between the father and the son? Marcion had attempted to introduce diatheism, belief in the existence of two gods, but Tertullian clung tenaciously to the Judeo-Christian monotheism he had received from the beginning, a belief in only one God. Yet he did so in a way that made room for diversity in the Godhead as well. Tertullian was the first known writer to use the term Trinity to express the relationship of three and one that characterizes the Christian God. To explore this concept, he employed several images to depict the divine balance of unity and diversity. For example, picking up on the idea of the Lagos, which we have already seen in, in Justin Martyr, Tertullian pictured Christ as the inner rational discourse within God's mind. The Logos has always existed as, as distinct from God, yet is united with him, just as our own thoughts inherently belong to us. When the humans think about something, it's as if we have a separate mental conversation partner in our heads. At the same time, we are single individuals. So too, God is both unified and complex. He is one God Yet he eternally discourses with his own word or reason. Other images Tertullian favored were a tree and his root, the sun and his rays, and a spring and its stream. All these metaphors attempted to highlight the unity of the Godhead while simultaneously acknowledging its inherent diversity of persons. The Heavenly Father sent forth from Himself a son who is clearly separate, yet who is always inseparable from him. These paradoxical principles will set the stage for the subsequent early church debates about the Trinity, and about Christology. What can we conclude about Tertullian? Tertullian is one of the two church fathers who are not called Saint by the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. The other is Origen. The primary reason that that Tertullian does not look favorably upon is this is association with the Montanists. But this should tell you something about his personality. Certainly he was a deeply flawed character, he could be harsh and moralistic, especially later in his life. He even wrote an entire treatise telling women what kind of clothes and makeup they should wear. There was also a legal or contractual aspect to his understanding of salvation which opened itself to the idea of earning merit with God through penitential actions. Uh, Tertullian believed in a strict moral code uh, as, as all Christians ought to behave. Uh, one of the things that he believed was he believed that Christians uh, could only marry once. So even if your spouse died, you couldn't remarry according to Tertullian and Another thing that he believed was that a Christian could only commit one serious sin after conversion, just one serious sin. And if you did more than that, well then you couldn't be forgiven. So that was another aberration in in Tertullian's thinking. Although Tertullian could be honored at times, we may still admire the boldness of his assault on all the heretics. In the late second century the church was under assault from a host of heretical groups but by the time Tertullian was finished writing in AD 12 the situation had changed dramatically Marcionism had been roundly defeated and was in decline Gnosticism while by no means gone never again again threatened the orthodox church in the great cities of the Roman Empire of course there were many reasons for the triumph of the Christian church during this era. But of many reasons, none could be greater than the massive literary firepower brought to bear against both pagans and heretics, and the fiery, enigmatic, and always entertaining Tertullian Carthage. Father, we thank you once again that you have never failed your church. You have continuously brought about its its progress, its advancement, its growth, despite persecution and opposition, opposition from government authorities, opposition from heretics. Through all of this, you have preserved your church. And it's always been that way. You are able to work through Christians, even though we are not perfect, even though we make mistakes and we sometimes go astray, you are still able to work through us and providentially secure your truth and to see that it has passed on to future generations. We thank you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.